Matthew Shepard, a gay Wyoming college freshman, was killed 25 years ago, October 1998. To honor him and mark this sad anniversary, we bring you our 2009 interview with his mother, Judy, who went on to champion LGBTQ civil rights and anti-violence in general. This is also a companion piece to a live call-in show on the status of queer civil rights, Thursday, October 5th at 6 p.m. on KALW. We'll post it here at outinthebay.org after the broadcast. Now, here's our 2009 conversation with Judy Shepard. Hello, I'm Eric Jansen. Welcome to Out in the Bay, gay radio for San Francisco and beyond. Our lives, our voices. My guest lived through a horrendous ordeal that quickly became a painful point in our history. Her son, a 21-year-old college student, was beaten, tied to a fence post, and left to die on the outskirts of Laramie, Wyoming in October 1998. The image was seared into the minds of millions in America and worldwide, especially the minds of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people, because Matthew Shepard was gay. But less than a year after his tragic death, before both of his murderers were even sentenced, Matt Shepard's mother began speaking out publicly and has since become a leader in our country's gay rights movement and in a larger movement to erase hate and violence. She's here to speak with us about her loss, her activism, and her book, The Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder in Laramie and a World Transformed. Judy Shepard, thank you so much for being here with us. Welcome to Out in the Bay. Thank you, Eric. Sometimes it's a little hard to know where to begin. It's such a it's such a such a painful subject. But I want to write, ask you first: Why did you write this book? You must have had to revisit a lot of pain in order to write it. You know, I thought it was going to be really hard, and parts of it were. Um, but it was important to me and to Dennis and Logan as well that we uh, correct some mistakes that are out there in the press uh, about Matt and his family and what happened. And I also wanted um, everyone out there who only knew him as Matthew to introduce them to my Matt. Um, I wanted him to be more to them than a one-dimensional photograph or an article in the paper. He was a real person who had a family and friends. Um, He had a life before that night. He was found tied to the fence. What are some of the biggest misconceptions you think people have about Matt or what they knew as Matthew? Right, well, one that he was this angelic child who was, uh, you know, perfect in every way. Totally not the truth. He could actually be quite annoying sometimes. Um, but he was uh, funny, he was smart, uh, loved people, um, very interested in public service, politics, um, loved to perform, he loved the theater, meeting people. Uh, he was just, he was very involved in the world all around him, And uh, but he had issues, you know, he struggled with depression, um, and he smoked uh, too much, and was a 21-year-old college student who drank too much and didn't study enough, much like his mother. Uh, and it was a, you know, he just was a young man in search of his life, like everybody else. And it also seemed like, uh, from reading reading your book, that at the time he was he was dealing with some pretty deep issues, and he was seemed like he was getting it getting it back together. That's what we thought. We thought the move to Laramie was going to be really positive for him. He had uh, friends and was familiar with the town and um, already there, and it seemed like maybe he was on the road to recovery from his uh, from his assault in Morocco. So that was we all had very high hopes. Now the assault in Morocco you just mentioned, I didn't. I had forgotten about this. I saw the Laramie Project. I don't remember it being in there, but it, my friends told me it was. But he was raped when he was uh, seventeen years old in in Morocco, and he was a, a like a foreign exchange student. Well, we were living in Saudi Arabia at the time. They had no American high schools, so he had to go to a boarding school. 
uh, as did his younger brother. Matt chose to go to a school in Switzerland, and they were on a senior trip uh, to Morocco. There were seven or eight of them that went together, um, and he was uh, raped by uh, a handful of locals, three or four. Um, they were never found. The police there worked with Matt to try to find who it was who had attacked him, but his whole uh, perspective on life changed after that assault. He was very much... Um, he was very much the victim after mm-hmm. that. It was in his attitude. It was in his uh, gait, the way he carried himself. Um, he struggled deeply with nightmares and anxiety and uh, and depression after that. And he had sort of a habit of, you know, when everyone else had gone to bed, he still wanted to go out and yeah, meet he, people he by was, himself. He was always very restless nature and, uh, and loved to socialize. Um, even when he was very small, it was not ever time to go to bed. It was always time to chat. Uh, so he was, he was, uh, it was just part of his makeup. It's just the way he was. Sounds like he had an awful lot of energy. He had a lot of energy. In your book, you talk about losing friends, at least temporarily in Casper, Wyoming, your hometown, because it was just too uncomfortable for them to talk with you about their lives, about their children after you'd lost Matt in such a horrible way. And you write in the book that you that you knew you had to talk about your loss. You had to talk about Matt's murder at that time, a year after. Why? Why? Well, this is uh, you know, there's this conception that sometimes some people think that everyone grieves the same way, and that just isn't true. Uh, you either you either take it on and make it part of your life, or you try to push it away and you ignore it, or it overtakes you. And I wasn't going to let any of those things happen to me. We knew as a family that we had to talk about Matt, that we had to try and make life for his friends and his community better because we had that opportunity to do that. Uh, With all the press and Matt's name and our name everywhere, we thought we had a window of opportunity where maybe people would listen to what we had to say. Some of my friends thought I should just be quiet and just move on. I couldn't do that. That would have driven me insane. Um, So they were unhappy with that life decision of ours. Uh, and it also became uncomfortable for me to talk about Matt with them. I think they felt a certain amount of guilt, but also relief that what had happened to Matt had not happened to their child. But then they feel guilty because that's what they felt. So it was, right. you know, it was uncomfortable for them. It was uncomfortable for me. Uh, it became kind of a toxic relationship sometimes. Yeah. So I just, I just had to move on to people who could support me in a way that I needed them. Have you regained any of those friendships? No. You made new friends through the process of becoming an activist. So tell us about that transformation in you, overcoming your public shyness, uh, your distrust of the media. Uh, I get from your book that you're still a very private person, yet here you are now on a national speaking tour. You've been speaking for the past uh, 10, 11 years almost. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, I was an introvert off the scale on the infamous Meyer Briggs personality test. Um, I just had to overcome that because the message became more important than my, my comfort level. Once I actually started doing it, it was really it wasn't as bad as you might think. Uh, I wasn't selling anything. I wasn't relating, you know, facts exactly. It was my story, and it became like talking to my friends in my living room, telling my story. So uh, the public speaking part wasn't so hard. The media was always difficult. You have very um, well educated, well informed media people, and you have those who are not so much, who don't do any research, and and that's a very uncomfortable interview to do. Uh, so you just kind of overcome that. And I did some work with the human rights campaign with Elizabeth Birch. And for anybody out there who knows Elizabeth, you know that she's a force of nature and you just pretty much want to do whatever she wants you to do. She's an amazing individual and uh, I love her. 
But she basically just gave me a swift kick in the tush and said, this is what you need to do, this is what you should do, and you know you can do it. So with their help and their uh, influence and education, um, I just I thought I needed to try to do it. And mm-hmm. it became, it actually, I kind of enjoyed meeting all those people. So the travel was awful, but meeting them was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Some of the most touching parts in the book for me were... Um, when you talk about having a hard time being in public, uh, for example, at, um, I believe it was uh, the first news conference that Dennis held before Matthew's Memorial, is that mm-hmm. right? And you were right. you decided you had to go up and stand by him even though you weren't going to speak. Right. And you started to cry and you were, um, you know, fighting all you could to hold back your tears because you didn't like the fact that I, if I, I'm remembering this perhaps a little bit wrong, but, you know, uh, the AP reporter said uh, Judy stood by his side holding back tears. Right. And, and you felt that made you weak or somehow. It did. And it also made me realize that what they were concentrating on was not the facts of the story, but the emotions coming from the heartbroken parents. Uh, it was like the first question that anybody, you know, right at the way was, well, how does this make you feel? Well, duh. It makes me feel like crap. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm mad. I'm sad. I'm, I'm heartbroken. Uh, what a stupid question. And I just, I felt like when the cameras started going crazy, when the tears start to flow, that they're, they're not out there for the story. They're out there for what, for the emotion that they can wring out of whoever they're interviewing. Mm-hmm. I guess they think it makes the story more interesting to the reader. I, I disagree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, it became, a, a, you know, a, a, a decision of mine to try to not ever do that in public. And I can't always mm-hmm. keep it in, but mm-hmm. I try really hard because I want people to listen to what I have to say, not worry about my emotional health. Right. I guess for me, what what it brings up as a journalist, and I have never, I hope I've never been tried to go for that, you know, sucker emotional thing. But, you know, the the pain that is in the people left behind after something like this is also an incredibly important part of the story. It is. Uh, and I, I felt that just intellectually, everybody should know that. Uh, and emotionally, I didn't feel like they needed to see me sob. They didn't that's what they it. needed to report on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You also wrote that it was hard when people wanted to share their pain with you, that somehow Matthew's murder, Matt's murder, brought up their pain, and they contacted you. They sent you thousands of emails. They sent you condolences. They sent you cards, and it was just too much for you to handle at first. But eventually you read most of them or perhaps all of them. No, no, no way. <laughs> She's shaking her head. You know, I've, met, I've read maybe out of the 10,000 that we have at the house, I've read maybe 100. Okay. You know, I start to read them and it's just like, it just tears my heart out. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful, beautiful letters. I have shared them all with my friends, with my family, uh, with people who are interested in what they have to say. They're beautiful, wonderful letters, but I can't read one of them without bursting into tears and hearing about their pain. They would send a card and they'd sign their name and then pretty soon they're writing on one side of the card, then the other, then the back, and then they're adding pages because they just want to keep talking. And I, right. I get that. I get that they want to share. I love it that they trust me that they can share. But reading about them, is just, it's just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Out in the Bay. My name is Eric Jansen. My guest is Judy Shepard, the author of The Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder in Laramie and A World Transformed. I want to ask you about forgiveness. You and Dennis both, in the book... And uh, in his closing statement to the court at Aaron McKinney's sentencing, one of his murderous sentencing, mentioned the guilt that you felt over things you might have done differently. And I just wonder if any of that remains or if you've been able to fully forgive yourselves and 
maybe even Matt for some of his behaviors that you thought perhaps might have put him in situations of danger at different times in his life? You know, you can beat yourself up forever with the what ifs. Um, we, we've tried really hard to move away from that. We all felt, Logan and Dennis and I, that we were in a really good place with Matt when we lost him. We, none of us had parted with him on, on bad words. There was, there was no anger. There was, um, there was a really good, close feeling among the family when we did lose him. Uh, he and I had had angry words a few days before, but we had spoken since and took care of all of that. Uh, I let him know how much I loved him and he returned how much he loved me, um, so we all felt like we were in a good place with him. If we had not been in Saudi Arabia, if he had not been in Laramie, if, 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 could just drive a person insane. We just, we just can't deal with that. It isn't what happened. Um, so we just, we just try to move on. Okay. And as far as forgiveness for McKinney and Henderson, they're you know, Matt's killers. I mean, it seems like insane to ask that question. And yet, um, do you believe anything in McKinney's defense team story that his own sexual abuse as a child contributed in any way to his, this rage that he took out on Matt? You know, it doesn't matter if I believe it or not. Um, it doesn't excuse anything he did that night. Uh, they both, those young men, had horrible childhoods, horrible family life. doesn't excuse what they did that night. It's not a, a mitigating factor. They made many, many conscious decisions uh, that night to continue their assault on Matt and leave him there and continue to leave him there. Um, forgive them. They've not, either one of them, shown any kind of remorse for what they did to Matt. They feel remorseful for where they are, but not for what they did to Matt. Do we need to forgive them? It's really not on my radar. I blame society equally, if not more, for creating the environment that made them think it was okay to do that to Matt. Uh, that's our goal now is to change that. So, um, they haven't asked for forgiveness, so it's really not not in my consciousness yet either. So you said your goal is to change society so that kind of a behavior is not considered an option right, exactly. to anybody, no exactly. matter how screwed up they are. Exactly. So tell us about the Matthew Shepard Foundation. Well, we, we started it, um, actually we incorporated in Wyoming on Matt's birthday, December 1st, 1998, um, when Matt was in the hospital and soon after he had passed in those lovely cards and letters. Many people sent um, small donations to try to help us with medical bills. Well, we didn't, we didn't want to use their money for that. So we, uh, we knew we wanted to help young people. We thought we could use this money to make something positive come from something really so negative. And, um, we knew we wanted to help young people. What it has morphed into now is two websites, matthewshepherd.org and matthewsplace.com. Um, matthewsplace.com deals with age, group from probably 12 to 20, uh, where we have lists of resources and news and information, entertainment, interviews uh, to keep them informed and up to date on the movement, uh, what they can do to help. And also, we try to impart a sense of history. Uh, I think it's really important that we not forget where we came from and how we got where we are now. So much has been sacrificed by so many. So uh, we just try to keep them connected. To, to the movement and to themselves and to each other. And the other website, MatthewShepard.org, is basically information about the foundation. MatthewShepard.org, not MatthewShepardFoundation.org. Right. MatthewShepard.org. Okay, and the other one is Matthew'sPlace.com. Right. Right. You know, I posted on Facebook that I'd be interviewing you and asked folks to send in a question that they might have for you, and I got a few back, and, and one of them was... Um, 
I'd want to find out how the community, meaning Laramie, Wyoming, and their views on homosexuality have changed since 1998, if at all. Does Judy find people there more tolerant and open-minded? Um, did his death make the community feel remorseful or like they could have done more as a whole to prevent what happened? Um, I think that Laramie has changed at about the same pace as the rest of the nation. Uh, I think portions of it are more accepting. Absolutely, they're more educated. Does that mean that they're more accepting? Not necessarily. Um, but I feel that they're on the same path as the rest of the nation as far as moving, as accepting the gay community. Of course, some geographically, some parts of the country are far ahead of others. Um, but as a rule, in general, on average, I think Laramie and Wyoming are pretty much keeping pace with everybody else. The additional problem that Wyoming faces is because it's not, well, nobody lives there, for one thing. Uh, we only have 500,000 people in the whole state. And it's a big state. Yes, it's, it's eighth in size in the in the 50 states. So we don't have gay bars. We don't have gay and lesbian bookstores. We don't have, um, we do have a, an equality organization. We do have PFLAG chapters. We have a couple of gay GSAs in high schools. But there's gay really no, alliances. right, and there's really no vibrant out in the open gay community. Um, so there's no exposure. People don't still don't know that they know gay people. So they think stereotypically, which is never a good way to introduce the community uh, to, a, to a, a town or a state. It's We need to tell our stories so that everybody understands that their sheriff could be gay or their doctor or their minister or their grocer or banker, um, their next-door neighbor. Uh, we need to tell our stories. But have they changed um, maybe a little, but not necessarily more or less than anybody else? So the word gay, the concept of being gay is in the consciousness there. Right. But... Compare that to how it was when you grew up, uh, oh, Glenrock. Right. Well, that was a hundred years ago. Um, <laughs> Not quite. You know, it was, but... <laughs> we, we didn't. It just wasn't on anybody's mind, uh, unless you were gay. And then the shame was unbelievable, and the guilt for being different was just you just didn't. You moved away. You just moved away, far away from family and friends. If it was to a coast or a big city where you could disappear, that's pretty much what happened in those days when you were gay, lesbian bisexual or transgendered, you, you escaped. You think people don't move away as much anymore? Oh, no, I think they do, but I don't think it's as much. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's as much. And it depends on family background and where they are from. Uh, but being out and talking about it, having a public dialogue about it just never happened, ever. Uh, I had friends in college who were gay, but it was not something that we talked endlessly about or, or even gay rights or any of that. It was... I think society just accepted that they would always be sort of this hidden little dark corner of of human sexuality, and uh, that's just not the way it is anymore. We talk about it now, which means it's more open, it's more accepting, it's just it's just better. You've spoken in small towns, rural areas, I suppose, and big cities uh, across the country over the past 10 years. I'm curious to know what your perceptions are of these different towns. Is there a big difference? We have this, I think we have this sense here in San Francisco and California and New York, you know, the coast. We feel like the middle of the country can't possibly um, be as open-minded as we are. What do you, is that true? Um, is that a stereotype? Yes and no. Harmful? It's kind of the stereotype. Uh, what really makes the difference, I think, is the size of the population. Even the interior of California, the smaller towns, you'll find the same bias and bigotry that you'd find in uh, Michigan or Wyoming or New Mexico, uh, any state, any area where there aren't a lot of people, especially a gay community, you're going to find that, that bias and that bigotry exists. But if you think that you're safe in San Francisco just because 
it's California or it's San Francisco, that you know, that's not even true. Um, those hate crimes, they exist everywhere. You spoke just a couple days ago at uh, the Athenian School in Danville, uh, which is a private school and pretty progressive, but Danville has been described by a friend of mine who, who lives there uh, as the Orange County of Northern California. What was your reception like there? What did you find there? Well, with the audience was mostly the students and their parents, uh, the community who are, I guess you could call the choir, pretty much on board already, um, or they don't come. That's kind of what happens when I come someplace to speak. If they aren't part of the movement, if they aren't familiar with what's going on, they, they disagree, they don't come. So the reception in Danville was really lovely. Uh, I didn't have much of a chance to experience the community, but the school was fantastic. And they're doing a production of the Laramie they Project. They are. The high school is, yes. What do you know about the Laramie Project? Have you seen it? Do you, uh, you talk about some partnership with them, but you haven't seen the whole play. Well, I've not seen the full theatrical production of the Laramie Project. I did see the full production of the Laramie Project 10 years later. Um, but I've not seen the original in its entirety. I've seen bits and pieces of it performed here and there, and I know enough about it that I know I can't sit through. I can't sit through the whole thing. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, it's hard. It's hard for me yeah, to sit through it. It's just too hard. And but we've become great friends with the Tectonic Theater Project and with Moises Kaufman in particular. Um, we support what they do. I think the work that they do is one of the reasons why Matt's story is still so relevant um, and out there. They do. They just. It's an amazing production. It is. And to experience it in the audience or as part of the production, it's just transformative. It's it's an amazing piece of theater. And you mentioned that there's been a lot of mistakes made by other media productions, right. uh, TV movies about uh, Matt's murder and right. so on. Can you tell a little about what some of those, what some of that misinformation is out there? Sure. There was a, there was a, as a movie, a production called The Matthew Shepard Story, and as a movie... I thought it was actually done pretty well. And Stalker Channing, actually, who played me, um, and she was wonderful, and I adore her. Uh, but the story, the, the way they tell that story is not really factual in many ways. Um, they had Matt coming out to me in the hospital uh, after he'd been attacked in Morocco, and, and I just think that that's not right, and I think it sends a very incorrect message to the community about about how that happens. Uh, they changed They changed many things in the movie, uh, that were not right, historically even. Mm-hmm. Um, they made Aaron McKinney seem remorseful, and he, he was just not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to set the record straight in that regard. Um, many things, my friend said, well, Judy, they're more important to you than they are to anybody else, but it's still wrong. So at least I made the effort to set the record straight. Uh, it's out there now for anybody who cares. And one of the biggest misconceptions in the press in general is that Matt was found in a crucifixion pose, and that that's not true. But the media seems to want to hold on to that image. They don't want to report the truth. Why do you think that is? Because it's more compelling, I guess, um, more theatrical. You know, I also want to ask you, it, it, it seems at the time, I was involved with the National Gay and Lesbian Journalists Association at that time more than I am now, and I was living in Minneapolis then instead of here. And there was some discussion about, you know, why has this particular uh, murder come to be the one that, is all over the media. And of course it was horrible. Unfortunately, there have been horrible ones since. Yes. There's Gwen Harajo, who was uh, murdered in Fremont in 2002. Uh, 2005, this 23-year-old gay man named Amancio Corrales was uh, also a hideous murder, dumped in the Colorado River. So unfortunately, this stuff still happens. Mm-hmm. I think we knew that there was something... You know, the news cycle was slow. It was also right around National Coming Out Day. Mm-hmm. And he was like this 
perfect white college kid. Just uh, is that are those all the factors? Yeah, there. Well, it was a, a confluence, certainly, of many of those events. I think people were sick of Bill and Monica, which was the news story of the day. He was Matt was found alive. Uh, with a chance of survival, I think that contributed. Um, the iconic image of Wyoming, I think, contributed. The fact that his parents weren't there with him, I think, contributed. Uh, coming out day, you're absolutely right. Um, his photo, which seemingly seemed so uh, youthful and innocent, um, I think there were just a whole slew of uh, elements that just came together that made this last. Uh, and I think the Laramie Project, again, has had a lot to do with it continuing. Let's talk about the um, hate crime legislation. You have been adding sexual orientation to federal hate crime laws is something you've been working on diligently for right. a decade. Right. And uh, now we're close. Tell us the latest status. Yeah, we are so close. It passed the Senate, uh, 6435, I think. And um, next step is the president's desk. Um, and he has said he will sign it. It's attached to the Department of Defense authorization bill. Um, there is a, a need that, to get that taken care of pretty quickly. So. Does that create a problem that's de de attached to the defense authorization bill? No. Okay. No, it's all good. It's going to be great. So this is being taped on October 24th, 2009. It probably mm -hmm. won't air until uh, sometime in November. We'll, we'll see. It'll Perhaps be signed we'll have, by then. It'll be signed by then. Your you think it'll be signed within the next uh, two weeks? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yes. So we have that victory to celebrate. Yes, it's going to be fantastic. Why is hate crimes legislation so important? Well, we know it's not going to prevent crimes because if laws prevented crimes, you wouldn't have prisons. Uh, but what it does send is a message of respect to the nation as a whole that the government recognizes that hate crimes committed against the gay and lesbian community do exist in great numbers, and we need to address it, and we need tools to help solve the problem. Uh, the bill will create a reporting method that will have to be observed uniformly, uh, in the country. It provides funding for communities who are unable to afford the investigation and trials, such as Laramie suffered greatly for that. Um, it also expands the parameter of the government to uh, intervene if a community is unable or unwilling to prosecute an obvious hate crime. That, of course, will not happen with any kind of regularity, but it does provide that option. Um, and if I recall, in your book, there was some mention of uh, the fact that if there had been hate crime uh, laws in Wyoming, the expense of, um, like you opted to go with their plea bargains, partly right. because it would have been, it would have drained the county's money to have in a trial. They wouldn't oh, get right. any help from the federal government for right. the extra money it would have cost to go through a, a full-on murder trial. That's true. And they, uh, they had to furlough uh, four employees for the one trial um, because there just was no money in the budget to take care of the investigation in this expense of the trial. Mm -hmm. um, so this now will address that issue. Uh, we know intellectually it's not going to prevent, but it's going to make people think. And I think changes, I personally think changes begin with changing the law. So this is a building block now. We can move on to uh, employment non-discrimination, don't ask, don't tell, and DOMA. Anything else you want to um, add before we close? You know, I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak, and I just want everybody to remember that Obama can't do this by himself. <laughs> In your epilogue, you say that the most common question you get after you speak pub publicly is, how do you do it? And I think you said you're not sure why people ask that or know what they expect to get from you. I don't have the time to tell you the whole story I was going to, but but I do say that I think that it as you mentioned, it brings up people's own personal pain. We all have pain in our lives. It may not be as severe as the loss you've had, but I think it, for me, it's like, wow, if she can live through this, then certainly I can live through whatever pain is troubling me. So I guess we look to you as an example, perhaps. Um, 
Do you think that's part of it? You know, it's it's been my survival. This has been my grieving process. And uh, last night, someone asked me that question, and and I answered, I just don't want to disappoint Matt. I think that's really why I do it. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you. That's Out on the Bay for this week. I want to thank my guest, Judy Shepard, author of The Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder in Laramie and A World Transformed, and also president of the Matthew Shepard Foundation. You can find out more at matthewshepard.org. That last name is spelled S-H-E-P-A-R-D. And also uh, more information at matthewsplace.com. We want to hear from you, so please do drop us an email, eric at outinthebay.com. I'm Eric Jansen. Thanks for listening. That was our 2009 conversation with Judy Shepard. She's Matthew Shepard's mother and co-founder and president of the Matthew Shepard Foundation.